I love our text tonight because it, it fits so much for me. I'd like to go back and read in Matthew 9, verse 37 and 38, and then we'll pray. It says, Then he said to his disciples, referring to Jesus, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And it's today the the harvest is white. And people are concerned about so many different things. And when we should be worried about the harvest, worried about the things that God has called us to do. Well, let's open in prayer. Father, tonight we commit this time to you and we really give our hearts over to you and we ask that as we listen, you will help us connect our hearts with your will. That we'll see things through your eyes and not through our own eyes what's going on, but the things that you would have us see. So many are praying, Lord, come now, come now, and all of us want to go to be with the Lord, but you have told us to, again, beseech, to pray to the Lord to send out workers in the harvest. You're patient in your long-suffering, wishing that none would perish, but all come to the saving knowledge of you. And Lord, we want to be right in the middle of your will. We want to be focused on what you would have us be focused upon, and that's what we want to do tonight. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 tonight. And I titled this really the, the Messengers of the King because Matthew is presenting Jesus as the King of the Jews. He's come to his own. And there's messengers, and that's what we're going to see, disciples and apostles. And as I read back in Matthew chapter 9, that we are to beseech the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers. There's a great need to, to reach out to the lost, to be a light and salt unto the earth. And that's so important that there are people going to hell, and yet we're worried about things that we cannot change. And yet we have our own, please understand, our own individual calling. And just as as he's raising up these workers, he has also called us. Let me read Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. It begins there, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. In verse 2, he goes on, now the names of the 12 apostles are these, verse Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Thomas, and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, and the one who betrayed him. And it's, it's interesting because here we see our leaders about to embark on a journey. He's going to go to the cross not long from this time. But when a, when a leader's going to 
embark on a new ministry, a, a new opportunity. He needs to raise up men. See men raised up, faithful men, but not just men, women too. And this is what he's talking about, how, how to raise up these people. He needs to choose his disciples. And disciples, remember, are the ones that are already following. They're, they're men and women who are committed. They, they're continuing his word, meaning that they're listening, but they're following it. They're not just hearers of the word, they're doers of the word. So he picks these 12. We'll talk about that more later on. And these he picks are, are like, today we might liken these disciples to a, apprentices. They're learners. Every believer, please understand this, is a disciple if you're a true believer. If you're not a disciple, then you're really not a believer. And disciples can be likened to apprentices, again, putting themselves under it. They're learning a trade, and then one day they're going to go out, and they're going to do it as their own, and then they're going to train others. And that's what a disciple does. He learns with the idea that one day he's going to be a teacher and he's going to raise up others to send them out. So as Jesus is going to leave this world, he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. He'll be raised upon the third day. We understand, ascended to the Father. We see that in the book of Acts. He's going to leave his authority in the hands of apostles. And it's here in this text. Verse 2, he calls them the 12 apostles. And here it's the first time this is used. In all the other cases, it's using the term disciples. Apostle is one who is a sent. We talk from time to time that apostle Jesus Christ is the apostle, the book of Hebrews talks about, sent by the Father to die upon the cross, as I mentioned. Jesus then sends his apostles. And that's important to understand. We'll look at that a little more as we go along. And they're sent once. And you and I, likewise, disciples, are also sent with that great commission as we've talked from time to time. But it's here that Jesus is choosing his disciples. And this would be his, what you would say, his right-hand man, the man that he can lean upon. It can be a woman in some cases. His helpers, let's say, in the the days of his flesh, he was fully God and fully man. But people that would come alongside and learn, someone that he would pass the baton on when he would go, they were the ones that would carry on the work when he left this earth. And so in verse 2, again, he names these 12 apostles. Now, there's some... Facts about these men that Jesus chooses that I want to call your attention to, I think you could probably relate to. They were simple, ordinary men. They were not men of wealth. They didn't have a great academic background, if any. They had no social status in the community. They were chosen, again, this is important to understand, from the common people. So they were ordinary Ordinary men, ordinary women, ordinary education, ordinary as far as their social status. They're just like the people that you walk through a store, whether it be Walmart or Target or a mall, you pass them every day. You've gone to school with them. And this is the people that God chooses 
These were the early disciples, the apostles. It's the kind of people that he chooses now today the same. No different. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1.27, he says this, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. This, this refers to every believer. We're the foolish things of the world. The people can't brag. We can't brag about ourselves. We don't, I don't have a great education. Never really been to college. Never really been to, to Bible school or seminary. What he's looking for is people that are willing to follow him, willing to trust, willing to be a learner, learn from him. He's not looking for, again, extraordinary men, but ordinary men, that God's glory could be manifested in them. Extraordinary in the sense that God will work through them. And people will look and say, there must be a God. God has changed this person. I know this person in the past. And that makes it really so cool because that means many of us are, are, are there that God could choose us and use us for his grace. Because it, we don't, can't earn it. We can't work for it. We can only receive, trust, and rest in him. So Jesus chose these men, not on what they were, but Jesus looked at them and said, I'm going to do this in this person. And I'm going to do this in this person and this in this person. And he's looking at each and every one of us. And he's wanting to do a great work, a work that you could never, ever imagine. The world would laugh at it, that that you could be a pastor, you could be an elder, you could be a deacon. But the things that are impossible for man are possible for God. See, the average ordinary man is the prime candidate to receive God's grace, and that's what we need. When a man surrenders his life to God, to, to the influence and to his power, God does great, extraordinary things through them. But it involves a, a surrendering. A surrendering of our lives, our will. No man could ever think that he has anything to offer. We don't have anything to offer. What, what, what could I offer to God? One thing. My will. To surrender my will to him. To allow him to live in me. Work through me. And this is the same thing he wants to do in you. The enemy said, oh no, God could never do anything. I'll tell you, God can do great things, wonderful things, extraordinary things. If you only surrender your will to him. And he's waiting. He's calling. He's encouraging people to to. Pray again that God raise up workers for the harvest because the, the, the ministers are needed. Not necessarily with a title, but those will go out and share the gospel. Those will go out and make disciples. Those will sometimes just sit in the hospital with somebody who is dying. Read to them. Encourage them. Maybe just to make meals for them when they can't make meals. 
It's interesting, though, as we look at this extraordinary group of men, ordinary but extraordinary, they're really a motley crew. It's quite interesting when you think of it. I'm not going to go through all the lives of the people tonight because we'll deal with them from time to time, but I want to pull just a couple of them to show you the wonderful things that Jesus Christ does. Think with me, Matthew. Matthew, the the one who became a disciple and apostle, a tax collector, despised, hated by the Jews, collaborator, again with the Romans, traitor to them, sold out to the enemy as, as far as they're concerned, and he did it all for gain. And you see Matthew, this man that Jesus calls him, but there's someone else I want to call your attention to. It's Simeon. Simeon called the zealot. Zealot. It's interesting. Zealots were the it would have been the Jewish liberation front of their day. They were actively opposing again the, the Roman occupation in every way. And yet here as disciples, here as apostles, they're one in heart and one in mind. This is one of the things I love about the church because people come from all these diverse backgrounds, opposite in personality, opposite in culture, opposite in education, and yet they become one. Jesus says you'll know them by by their love for one another. The world might hate them, but they love one another. What amazing group of men a motley crew with all the kind of problems. Who's the greatest in arguing among themselves? I don't think they're much different than those in the church today in this world. Same struggles, same problems. We all struggle with pride. But when a person surrenders his life, gives himself over to Jesus Christ, his whole life changes. They have that kindred spirit. And that's what we need to pray for is God would raise up the workers for the harvest that they'd have this kindred spirit. It's all about Jesus. Not what's going on in the world or this earthquake. And yes, we're concerned about the end times and, and the tsunami. Yes, that's a, it's a concern. But, but really, the greatest concern is there are people going to hell each day that have never heard the gospel message. In times like that, when people are fretting, it's a time to be available to pray for and watch what a a gracious loving God will do when we allow him to work through us so here's the wonderful truth that men that actually hated each other before learn to love each other in Christ but sadly the church is, is not a body the church is really the body not a building, but it's become these different denominations. And, and this denomination is right, and this one's wrong. And, and other churches say, we're the only church that's right, and we're the only good church. And sadly, and too often, this, what we call religion, divides the body of Christ, grieves the heart of God. Because God wants to make us one and one in Him. 
It's interesting, though, as he picks these 12 apostles, and the question always arises, why 12? Why 12 disciples? There's the thought that 12, they take it back to the 12 tribes, and, and this is the, the new Israel. And there's a dangerous view in that for some, because they actually believe that they are the new Israel. God is not finished with Israel. He has a promise. They're blinded for the sake of the Gentiles now, but, but the tribulation will come, and he'll bring out the, the true remnant of Israel. God will fulfill every promise in the millennial kingdom, just as he said. And those that say that they're the new Israel take on this, again, that the church is really Israel, and there are promises given just to Israel, and there's promises to the church. People are always dividing because they don't have their eyes upon Jesus. They're always worried and fretting about things because their eyes aren't on Jesus. I love the fact that God has given us peace that passeth all understanding. He's given us peace, not as the world gives, but he gives us this supernatural peace that he's on the throne, he's in control, and all things work for the good for those who love the Lord and call according to his purpose. The question is, do you believe that? Because a person that believes that rests and trusts in him. So again, why the 12? Well, those are the 12 lost tribes. Well, let me tell you, God has never lost those 12 tribes. God has always known where they're at. God's reminding you he knows, and he's got his hand upon his eye. They're the apple of his eye. It's also used as imagery for leadership. The 12 tribes will reign. You can see it again in the millennial kingdom. You can also see there's the 12, again, leaders that will be, again, representing Israel during the, uh, the book of Revelation, and you see it. It's not so much why or what. The fact is, God's done it. And we'll see how it really pans out in the end because, again, people are dividing over these little things. The fact is God's simply raising people up, choosing people for his purposes, for his glory. And the choice becomes ours. Will we be a part of the work that he wants to do? Will we surrender our will? Well, look with me in verse 1. We see the making of these messengers Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits and cast them out and heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. What he's given them is this the authority over the kingdom. This authority is authority that he had. And this authority is, is a theme that really runs through the book to show that he has the authority In fact, let me read again from Matthew 7, verse 28 and 29. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them one having authority, not as the scribes. Authority. He spoke as no man spoke. And this is important to understand. The word of God itself has authority, and he is that word. 
Oftentimes people hear a pastor speaking and they say, oh, he's anointed. And while God does anoint his workers, the authority, the powers in the word. See, the Holy Spirit takes the word and works in the person of God, convicts that person, encourages that person, builds that person up, directs that person. When you're teaching the Word of God, you're teaching the authority of God. And that's so important to understand. It's in Matthew 8, verse 9. It says, For I also am a man under authority with the soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go. And he goes. And to another, come. And he comes. And my slave, do this. And he does this. Notice this is the centurion. He, he recognizes authority. He's one who's under authority. And this is something that in our culture, the, the culture rejects authority. This is why many people never come to Jesus Christ. Because they do not want to surrender their life. They don't want to put themselves under the, the authority of God. And, and if they always choose that way, they will never be born again and enter the kingdom of God. We need to submit to the authority of the Lord. Understand that he is the only true authority. And all authority here on earth is appointed by him. And then there's Matthew chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But so that you will may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to all men. Jesus declared he had this authority. Every saved person, every person born again, recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ. This is what the world is rejecting, that authority. They don't want to put themselves under. And to be a disciple, you you need to, to submit to the authority of the Lord. When he says go, we go. And when he says come, we come. When he says do not, we we do not. Because we know he always has the best for us. He loves us with an everlasting love. What Jesus did is he gave his apostles this authority to operate in his name. So when the authority is given, the things that he... The, the person, the apostle was doing at that time, well, these were things that were signed to Jesus. They were, we call them messianic miracles. There were some things that only, again, that the apostles could do. Now, this is where I'm going to rub some people wrong when I say this, but I don't believe in modern day apostles today. Let me show you why in the scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, it says, The signs of, notice, a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. The true apostles did these signs, wonders, and miracles. Today there are signs and wonders and miracles, but they're counterfeit. Now, God can still do any of these things through any one of us if he chooses to. But he had given them these certain signs. Now, understand, signs were pointing to the Messiah. These are messianic signs. 
They would go out in His name. They would give glory to Him. And they would point it to Him. So Paul speaking, this is the sign of a a true apostle. Meaning, if there are true apostles, there are false apostles. People that exalt themselves, make false claims. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. It says, am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? One of the things is you follow this idea through that the apostles, those that Jesus appointed, those true apostles, had to be eyewitnesses of Jesus. For example, Paul was taught the book of Galatians personally by Jesus for three years. Then it says in Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers. So these apostles were a gift, a gift to the church. Now follow with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Having built on the foundation of the apostles, he's talking about the same apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being that cornerstone. The word of God that you and I have here was given by these apostles. Peter will talk about that later when he talks about their move by the Holy Spirit. They wrote down only what the Holy Spirit would have them do. These are the true apostles. And there are many more passages that really direct us this way. In fact, I don't believe any believer today can honestly claim to be apostle. For number one, none of us have seen the risen Christ. None of us are eyewitnesses of that event. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice in a joy inexpressible, full of glory. None of us after this time were eyewitnesses. Again, when Judas betrayed Again, Jesus, they needed to pick one who was an eyewitness, who had been in the beginning with John the Baptist right up to the very end when Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the grave. He's talking about a unique group of people that God would use to lay this foundation. The rest of us, well, we're workers. God will work through us if we surrender our life, but we have to be very careful with the titles that we choose. Now, the purpose of these miraculous signs, please understand, was to authenticate these apostles that they were sent as God's messengers, sent by Jesus Christ, because they were messianic miracles. In fact, in Acts 2.22, it says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you, by God, with miracles, wonders, and signs which God had performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. These miracles testified that he was the Christ. He was the anointed one. Now, every, again, worker needs to recognize who Jesus Christ is and who they are in Christ. Recognize that they're not to exalt themselves up but to humbly come before him and serve him. 
It's again in Acts chapter 2, verse 43 this time. It says, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. There's some things that were unique to Jesus Christ and his apostles only. Does God perform miracles today? Yes, he does. But putting ourselves in a place, exaltation, this is the problem that we have in this world. We like to exalt man and tear him down all the time. Let's give God the glory. Let's humbly walk with our God and not exalt ourselves. Now what Christ did is he empowered his disciples, his apostles in this case. He gave them the ability. God's calling is God's enabling. If God calls you into the kingdom to be his disciple, to serve him in a ministry, he will enable you. Your part is just to simply surrender, to trust, to believe in him. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what anybody said about you, your ability or inability. God will enable you. He will baffle you time and time again. I remember in a church when I first got saved, there was a man named James. He was called James the Faithful. He had some disabilities. But he served in that church with all of his heart, mind, and soul, and strength. He loved the Lord. He taught in the children's ministry. He did whatever needed to be do. do. That's what God's looking for, a willing person. When we pray, we're praying that God would raise up someone. Just to say, use me, Lord. No matter what it is. I don't care whether they see me or not because, Lord, you're worthy of serving. This is the kind of people we pray for and this is the kind of people we need to be. These are the people that God uses that humbly walk before him. So there's a a nature in this idea that is, is very unique here. And it's important to understand he's, he's called these 12 men together and gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal the diseases. Now, it, it's interesting that he gave them authority or power over. It, it's a dyna- dynamic power, what we call this deutimous power. Now, there's a lot of people that think they're demon busters and they're always chasing after demons, as I mentioned a few weeks ago. If you're put in a situation and you need that, that, that power at that time, God will give you that power at that time. Do not think that you walk with this heavy gift upon your shoulder and the world needs you. The world needs Jesus Christ. And he uses people that are humble. People that will rest and trust in him. Now, the word used for power is is dynamic. It speaks again of that Holy Spirit, this dynamic power, like dynamite is where we get the word from. And I've seen people that people would sneer at, look down upon, and then I would hear them speak, and I've heard God so clearly. I've seen God move through the least of people because they humbly chose to walk with the Lord, to trust the Lord and believe the Lord. 
So verse 1, it says again, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits, cast them out, and to heal every kind and every kind of sickness. The power was not limited. The power was not limited. Let me read John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, Jesus speaking, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When you're abiding in Jesus Christ, humbly walking with him, God's dynamic power can flow through you in the time of need. It may be as simple as saying the right word, encouraging word, a word of exhortation at the right time, and you're wondering, where did that come from? The Holy Spirit, God moving through you. It's in verse 1 again. Jesus summoned these 12. He chose them. He called them. Then I mentioned these represent possibly the 12 tribes. Nothing to, to get lost on. And let me show you just a couple verses in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. It says this, And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so shall be the blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now he's speaking to those, again to Abraham, but it would come through those 12 tribes that they would be a blessing. Jesus Christ came through that lineage. You are blessed because of what God has done in them. At times they were sinful, and times in rebellion, but God made a promise. Again, in John 15, verse 16, it says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give you. When we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. And notice again, it says, and whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give you. Uh, Of course, we can compare that with other verses. It's anything you ask according to his will. When we're praying to glorify him, Lord, raise up workers for the harvest. Do we really pray that? Do we see that need? Do we have a heart for the lost? See, God is the, initiates, he puts these desires in our heart, but, but the question is, do we respond? We're only responders to him. The choice is ours. Now, he called them, and just as he's called you and me, now, Jesus in his calling, this is important to understand, he doesn't obligate men to do his work, but he offers them work to do. See, he doesn't force you He doesn't coerce you, but he invites you. He doesn't draft you or constrict you. He just simply seeks volunteers. If you want to be used by God, God will use you. Your part is to be prepared. To look and see what God would have you learn in every situation you're in. Lord, what is it you want me to learn? Whatever you're going through, Lord... Help me learn this lesson well that I don't have to come back here. It's been said that a a man is free to be faithful or just 
the opposite to be faithless. If you want to be faithful, he'll make you faithful, but the choice is yours. If you choose not to, you will be faithless. He will not force you. But to every man, there comes a a summons, a call. The person will either accept or reject. He's calling. We're to pray that God would raise up the workers for the harvest, that we would be open and willing to follow him wherever he goes. He appointed them in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. Follow with me. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him. He could send them out to preach or herald. He ordained them in the King James. He calls you because he wants to be with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And he wants to equip you that he can send you out. But the choice is still yours. You'll either follow him. Or you'll say no. No, Lord, as Peter did once. And Peter grieved, wept severely afterwards. Jesus was like a king pointing men, ministers, to honor him. He wants to send you and me out in the harvest to to bring glory to him. And the glory comes when people come into the kingdom, when people see his love, his sacrifice. Their lives are healed and changed. He's like a general allocating task to the commanders. Well, look with me again in verse 2. It says the names of the 12 apostles are these, and he lines it out. But only here he uses this apostles here, because the rest of the time he's going to talk about a disciple, a learner, and something you and I will be doing all the time. And a learner is one that's teachable. If you come to that point, or I come to that point where I say, no, Lord, or someone's showing me something in the scripture, and I'm not a brilliant to examine it to see if it's so, I'm no longer teachable. That's the kind of person that God puts on a shelf and says, you know, you're not ready. You need to be broken. You have to learn to trust me. And so many people think they know everything and they're no longer teachable. And and God said this and God said that and it doesn't even line up with the scripture. So assured of themselves. I think we always need to check ourselves because our hearts are wickedly deceitful above all things. Who could know it? I could deceive myself. You could deceive yourself. Matthew 7 Verse 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, perform miracles in your name? He says, again, I declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many when the Lord comes, they're going to be very sad as coming because they've deceived themselves. So sure of themselves. They don't recognize that they're still sinners saved by grace. They're no longer dependent upon him, no longer confessing their sins. The servant of Christ must continue to grow, grow in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And each day he must step Nearer to Jesus 
and a little nearer to God. So again, this term apostle just means a sent one. He's an envoy, he's an ambassador. He's sent by Christ. Now Matthew 10, verse 7, notice what it says. And, and as you go, preach. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word preach could be simply herald. Herald the message. The good news is Jesus Christ. That's the message we herald. The Christian is not meant to bring men their, their own opinions. That's a dangerous place. I've heard people say, well, you know, my opinion. It's okay to have that in a dialogue. But what people need to hear is really the word of God. There's some areas that we're not sure. Opinion? I understand, but this is what we do know for sure. This is what's black and white. Jesus Christ has come in this world to redeem sinful man. He's died. He's resurrected. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's the message they need to hear. Jump down to verse 5. He gives the commission. The 12, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them. He was teaching them. They were teachable. And what he was teaching was, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not go to any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you preach, saying to the kingdom of heaven's hand, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Now those things, again, were signs of the Messiah. The message was about Jesus, the Messiah. Luke tells us again, when the 70 went out, this is what he said. And it was a practice that Jesus did in Luke 10, 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70, sent them out in pairs ahead of him to every city in a place where himself was going to come. He sent them out in twos. And again, the, the principle here that many believe is that they were teachable. He was teaching them, he's working with them. There's a point that you have to launch people. Training people in twos is, is very powerful. It's easier to work with than a, a crowd. When people gather together as a crowd, yes, you can teach the word and it's discipling. Since discipleship is on a small basis. One to one. One to two. No more than 12. Because then it begins to break down. The scripture also reminds us of the Old Testament. Testament, the witness of two people is trustworthy. The working together in two gives strength. It's supporting one another. By twos, it's rewarding. And sometimes there's that encouragement, exhortation. Sometimes they feel like you dropped the ball and the other one can relate to it and can share and it's so important. But he sends them out. The message is consistent with John, Jesus, the apostles repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The signs, the wonders, they're the Messiahs authenticating these workers sent by God. Verse 5, again, look at it. It says, the twelve Jesus sent out instruct him, do not go in the way of the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Find them. Again, in 2 Corinthians 17, it describes this mixed group or a party of pagans mixed with the Jews. In fact, they were troublemakers to the Jews, you'll find in Ezra chapter 4. The Gentiles were anyone that wasn't Jewish. In fact, what's interesting in Jewish circles even today, 
in many cases, Gentiles are Christians. Just as in this country. Many say, well, we're a Christian country because you're in this country, therefore you're a Christian. That's not true. Unless a person's born again, they'll not enter the kingdom of God. But a, a Gentile simply means a non-Jewish person. It does not mean a Christian. Jesus came to his own. He came to, again, in verse 6, the lost sheep of Israel. This is why we had those unique, again, miracles, was to testify that he was coming to them. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, and the waters will break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the Arba. This is speaking of that millennial kingdom, the things that the Messiah would do. They didn't understand there was a a gap in time, but these were the messianic signs. They were looking again for that millennial kingdom to come. Verse 7, he says, as you go, preach. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was for the Jewish people first, the lost sheep of Israel. The idea is that these sheep have gone astray from the Lord. It speaks not of individual, but as a nation. The nation has rebelled, the ten northern tribes, and then Judah and Benjamin. In fact, in Jeremiah 50, Verse 6, notice what it says. My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. So you notice the shepherds have led them the wrong way. And there's many false shepherds today leading people away from the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what the scripture says. For a country that's supposed to be a Christian country, the laws that are coming down in the next few years could bring persecution. The false shepherds are filling the churches today, teaching things that are not biblical. Well, they had made a turn aside to the mountains. They have gone along from the mountain to the hill and have forgotten their resting place. And then Ezekiel 34, 5, it says... And they have scattered for the lack of a shepherd. So they they didn't have a shepherd. A shepherd, an under-shepherd of the Lord. They became food for every beast of the field, and they were scattered. God's talking about Israel. These are the things. You need a shepherd that teaches the word of God. And they weren't there. Now the responsibility really falls on you and me more than ever before because we have the word of God. They didn't have Bibles like we had. We have so much more light today than they ever had at that time, but yet they're still accountable. God's plan is that the gospel would be proclaimed first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. In fact, let me read Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even the remotest parts of the earth. First of all, this is an outline to the book of Acts. This is what the book of Acts is about. How the gospel message went from, again, Jerusalem to the outermost parts of the earth. But notice where it starts. It starts in Jerusalem with the Jew, and then Judea, then to Samaria, which would be, again, the half-Jew, 
And finally, the remotest parts of the earth where the Gentiles were. This is the message that God had. It was to the Jew first. And they were to, as verse 8 says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out the team. Now, the Jew would recognize that these were the messianic miracles that I said. Look with me in verse 8. We see the, the equipment for the king's messenger. It says, freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold, silver, copper for your money belts or bag for your journey, even the two coats or sandals or staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. The apostles were non-profit in a sense, momentary. They were just to go in the power of the Spirit and preach and heal and testify who Jesus Christ is. They were to do it without any cost. Now, money was normally carried in a a money belt. You know, many people have money belts today. It was kind of like a a goat-tethered belt, like a girdle that was around their waist. Sometimes they had a place for coins to drop in, but they're not to take it. They were to simply trust God, not just for the power, but for their finances, this was so moved on me many years ago when the church started. We just we had an offering box. We wanted to make sure God was leading us, that we're not fleecing people, we're not trying to manipulate people, we're not calling people to come and give and give and give. Healthy sheep know how to give. We don't need to burden the people. We just teach the word. When we do outreach, we don't ask for money. We just go and bring the word of God. This is the model that we follow. It was something that was even in the Old Testament. The rabbis taught this. In fact, Rav Yehuda said again in the scripture, Behold, I have taught you the statutes, the judgments in Deuteronomy 4.5. Just as I teach for free, so you should teach for free. He was teaching his own students to go out, his disciples to go out. You don't do it for money. God has given you salvation free. Oh, it costs God, but we give away. Biblical Christianity, as you've heard me probably say before, is giving yourself away first to God and then to others. It's not expecting anything ever in return. Proverbs 23, 23 says this, Buy truth, do not sell it, get wisdom, instruct, and understanding. We should be willing to pay a great price first for truth and unwilling to give it up for anything. The same goes for wisdom, instruction, and understanding. We should spare no pains, is what it's teaching, to acquire that. Not grumble while it's hard, it's work, it it takes time. You and I need the wisdom of God, the truth of God. Look with me in verse 11. We see really the conduct of the king's messengers. In whatever city and village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay in its house until you leave that city. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. Now, worthy indicates someone responds in a, a positive way to the message. 
Now it says, in this idea that give a greeting, the word would be shalom or shalom alechem. Now the greeting simply means a, a peace or tranquility. It means safety and well-being, welfare and health and contentment and success and comfort and wholeness and integrity. This, this word is, is just pregnant with meaning. Pray the Lord would just bless them. When you say shalom alechem, it means peace be upon you. And we need the peace of God upon us. Simply shalom. A peace that passeth all understanding. So when you go and someone responds, you're to bless them. Our lives are to be a blessing, not just in word, but really bless and pray for them. Verse 13 continues, if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. This is what he's talking about. But if it's not worthy, take back that blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, you are to go out of the house and out of that city and shake off the dust off your feet. How can you take peace back? He's not saying take it back. Well, I'm going to take it back. No, no. He's just saying, look, stop at that point. Leave. They're unworthy. They see themselves unworthy of that good news. Shake off your feet. It's like a testimony against them. That they have rejected that gospel message. They didn't want that truth. The rabbis did that when they were going through, again, an unclean Gentile area. They would shake it off. It's a solemn, solemn warning against them. Those who had rejected that message. It's in Acts 13, verse 51, and they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them. And they went to Iconium, a testimony that all would see that they have rejected, that they were without excuse. The light was given, but they had rejected that light. And then in verse 15, it says this Truly I say to you, It'd be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than that city, the one that, again, they shake off the dusts. Because the light was so great. Jesus Christ had come, the the testimony, the signs, the wonders. And they rejected the truth, the truth that would set them free think today the light that has been given many rejected like a tsunami warning they wait until the last moment but today is the day of salvation the longer a person waits the harder the heart becomes If you receive that light, you need to come to Jesus. You need to confess your sins. You need to repent of your sins. Call upon his name. Because today is the day of salvation. Father, thank you for this time, the opportunity to bring your word. Thank you that your word does not come back void. 
We pray that your spirit will move, move in the hearts of those that are hearing this word. We pray too that as you're still equipping disciples today that they will hear and they will apply and they will go out and they will pray for more workers. Lord, we know the harvest today is is ripe today just as it was then. The needs are just as great today as they were then. Oh Lord, pour your mercy upon this community, each community. Show your glory. Bring the people into the kingdom. Use us, the foolish things of the world, to confound the wise. In Jesus' name, amen.